Okay, let's be serious here. Matze. Yes, Paula. You remember how we're supposed to host a panel on hacker cultures for the 4S East Conference in Prague? Yeah, I'm afraid that's something we promised to do. Exactly. So you know how it was moved online because of the coronavirus pandemic? Ah, the virus. Exactly. So you want to like skip that whole like boring online conference thing and make a podcast instead? Oh, I like podcasts. <laughs> okay, let's so, do it. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. This is Hacker Culture's The Conference Podcast. This year, COVID-19 turned most conferences virtual. So to combat Zoom fatigue, we decided to try another format and turn a conference session into a podcast. This series comes to you from the 2020 Joint 4S East Conference. I'm Paula Bielski, and along with my co-host, Mase Oyala, we're talking with all sorts of researchers who study what it is to be a hacker and what hacking, programming, tinkering, and working with computers is all about. As a technical note, some of this audio was recorded through Zoom. The audio might not be at its best, but it hopefully doesn't affect the content our researchers aim to get across. In this session, we're talking with Mina Sariketo and Marika Gloss. Mina is a postdoc at the Department of Computer Systems Sciences at Stockholm University, and Marika is a lecturer at the same department also at Stockholm University. This session is called In the Gray Zone of Hacking, Two Cases in the Political Economy of Software and the Right to Repair. And in their research, they address the gray zone of hacking. And what they mean here is that end users subvert software and hardware controls imposed by manufacturers, which also can be known as hacking. They discuss one empirical case in particular, and these are farmers claiming the right to repair of agricultural equipment. The right to repair movement has brought together users and developers to circumvent products that cannot be repaired or modified freely. Manufacturers have responded by so-called lock-ins, by not supporting spare parts, service manuals, disassembly and diagnostic tools, as well as forbidding modification of software in their licenses. Hackers have worked around these lock-ins, creating parallel networks of software and hardware distribution, supplying hacking tools to end users. So in their session, they'll talk about the political economy of software, how the control of technical artifacts is achieved both legally and economically. They'll also talk about the issue of agency, expertise, and technological literacy. So let's go to Marika and Mina's talk. In these wonderful two sessions, um, we'd like to invite Minna Sariketo, is that right? Finnish? Yeah, Mina will tell you. Okay, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Mina Sarketo from Stockholm University, um, who's doing her research with Barry Brown from Stockholm, as well as um, Marijke Gloss from Stockholm as well. And she's also here. And, ah, okay, wonderful. I will be joining. Great. You're all here. (laughs) Good, Good. great, wonderful. And they'll be talking about in the gray zone of hacking, two cases in the political economy of software and the right to repair. So, um, yeah, maybe we should first take it away. Um, Could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and the projects that you're working on? So there's both of you here. Take it away. Tell us a bit about yourselves. Great. So, hello everyone. Um, my name is Minna Sarketo. I'm a postdoc at uh, Stockholm University, as said, at the Department of Computer and System Sciences. But my background is in media studies and science and, science and technology studies. And my research in 
first half included questions of power, agency, technological agency, and especially people's experiences of their everyday life with network technologies. And also running an excellent course on agency that I had the pleasure to participate in. Thank you for that. <laughs> hi, thanks, Marthe. <laughs> Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, hi, I'm Malaiki Kloss. Um, yeah, like Mina, I'm at Stockholm University um, as a lecturer. I actually have a background in HCI, so we're a bit of a diverse group of human-computer interaction. Um, and But we are all very much interested in everyday life. And um, in particularly, we have been obviously starting on Internet of Things, the so-called. Um, and so... We have been working on a project that was or is called Securing Things, um, which originally started because we started thinking about security and what security means in you know, times of Internet of Things, especially here from an end user perspective. That was our point of departure. But then the more we, we kind of got deeper into that project, we realized that, that hacking, you know, all kinds of different forms of hacking these these devices is so much part of their of the of, of security uh, for for end users that um, yeah we 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 just dived in right there and and started getting really curious about those different practices and and formations of different actors around these kind of hacking practices around Internet of Things. Yeah. So our starting point is kind of the acknowledgement that consumer technology is not perfect, sometimes far from it. It's not solving all our problems, as especially the companies like to claim, but instead it comes with a lot of new ones. Technologies break, they come with unwelcome limitations, and all the features of the devices might not be available for the end user and so on. So as the first step in the project, we have studied cases in which hacking has served as a response to these problems. End users look for hacks to enable repair, to access data, to customize products and to add new features. And uh, the first cases that we've looked into include uh, hacks that are related to tractor repair, Nintendo Switch, uh, CPAP machines that are used by sleep apnea patients and insulin pumps. So it's a wide range of uh, things being hacked in different ways by very different people. So what are you suggesting here? Because you either are hacking or you're not hacking, but your project is talking something about this gray zone of hacking. So what's what's this then? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, and I think this dichotomy that you were bringing up, the hacking or not hacking, um, I think in order to explain that or go into that, I guess, you know, would be good to talk about the black and the white. Um, because there is a rather unidimensional idea of hacking. I mean, if you if you go back into the public discourse of the 80s and 90s, you know, it all started with hackers uh, being, you know, the mavericks of information age, you know, a bit of kind of something mysterious going on there, um, maybe even like Robin Hood figures or something. And then, of course, it transformed over time. And, you know, obviously there was this pushback. They were more and more seen as criminals. Um, we can definitely talk about the hacking and the cracking, mm. theoretically, if we 
go into that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, they were seen as criminals. There was uh, people from criminolo criminology going into there. It's really interesting if you look at these these papers back then, um, looking into how can we keep our children from becoming hackers and so on. <laughs> um, and I think especially I mean, this this panel here, for example, shows very well that, of course, this has become a bit more differentiated. Um, but still, we have this dichotomy of, oh, we have hacking. Um, there's, you know, good hacking, there's bad hacking, there's white hats and black hats and so on. Um, and when we were studying the cases that we had, we just really couldn't make them fit to the discourse and the literature that, that we found. We're like, this doesn't really describe it in in all depth. Yeah. So, yeah. With the gray zone, we have been playing around with the idea and we want to shed light at least on two different aspects that we don't see fitting well with the existing ideas and definitions of hacking. And the first aspect concerns the different roles and the knowledge and expertise that are connected to hacking. We observed how developers and end users of the hacks are engaging with each other in various ways and how there was quite a diverse range of tasks and expertise in these collaborative networks. And we want to emphasize these networks instead of the hacker that doesn't seem to exist as such in the cases that we've been studying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and the second aspect that we really want to highlight, you know, staying with the gray zone, um, is really more in this area of political economy. Uh, because I think for a really long time, it was about the hacker versus the law. You know, the, the hacker doing something illegal, stealing something, breaking in somewhere. But instead, I think a lot of the conflicts and a lot of the relationships that are really affected are between the consumers and the manufacturers and the way the power dynamics between them really play out. And, and I think the John Deere tractor case a tractor hacking case is actually a really good example of this. And what do you mean, like tractors that you drive around in the field? Is that kind of track tractor? Yeah, tell us more. Yeah, is this? Yes, exactly. What's going on? What's that? yeah? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, John Deere is uh, one of the most important manufacturers of tractors and uh, a central player in the case that we've been studying. Um, and modern tractors are complex and highly computerized machines. So before, if a tractor broke, a farmer could fix it uh, self or with the help of a chosen independent repair mechanic from the village or from nearby. But nowadays, uh, the tractors are embedded with a lot of software. And for diagnostics alone, to know which one of the dozens of sensors is not working, you need a diagnostics tool uh, provided by the manufacturer. And this tool is available only for the chosen repair mechanic. So you cannot really access it. So as one of the, the activists put it, uh, nowadays, farmers are driving around a giant black box outfitted with harvesting blades, and the manufacturers are the only ones who hold the keys for those boxes. Mm. 
So in the end here is a license agreement by John Deere. Uh, most repair and modification is disallowed uh, for the tractors. And what John Deere claims is that this model of repair is the only way to ensure quality and security. Mm. Yeah, and, and of course, uh, farmers in the U.S. have been protesting against this monopoly um, because it can also for them, it means often that it will wait too long to get a visit from a mechanic or, you know, the mechanic will live, you know, the approved mechanic will live really far away. Uh, and so because farming work is so time sensitive, um, weather sensitive as well, they often can't wait for that. Mm. Um, and of course, in addition to it, it's very expensive. So this monopoly means that um, the repair is more ex expensive. Again, they can't do it themselves. Um, and so even the repairs that the farmers could theoretically do themselves have to be authorized by a John Deere mechanic because, again, they can't access the software in the tractor that is usually um, necessary in order to make a repair in the end work. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, why farmers have joined the right to repair movement and claimed the, the right to maintain, repair and rebuild their own farming equipment. And in order to do this, uh, they should have access to manuals, diagnostic tools and tools, all the different tools that are needed for the repairs. Mm. And this is where hacking comes in. In order to do the, the repair themselves, farmers and independent repair mechanics, uh, mechanics have relied on pirated software and diagnostic tools. Mm. Uh, there are online forums for sharing and trading pirated software to enable the repair. But in these forums, the members also offer assistance and installation support for each other. And it seems that there's almost like a whole parallel economy providing software manuals, spares parts, tech support, and so on. Mm. And this, this movement, which you know has become a political movement, this right to repair movement, is much, much wider than only tractors because a lot of manufacturers have started to lock their products in one way or the other. And we all probably are familiar with that on an Apple iPhone. Sure. You can't just download whatever app you want. You have to go to the app store as the most popular example. Um, but there's other cases. I mean, some, as many lock their software, um, others don't supply spare parts or manuals. And um, it, it has been actually uh, it has been actually uh, quite interesting how Apple and other big te tech companies have actually been following the legislation battle, this political battle on tractor repair because you know they're obviously standing there and and are fearing this. Mm. So um, on the other side, users users and those we were interested in, they are the ones coming together to circumvent these restrictions and um, yeah, and that's where these online communities come in that we. We also have looked in quite extensively. So, okay, but but the, so you guys are suggesting? I mean, are you suggesting that um, these uh, everyone hacking tractors is sort of an activist fighting for access, etc. And all the good and, things, yeah, all the good things in life, etc. But or are you considering other motivations for these hacks, such as just like personal gain, getting a better crop, or whatever it is that uh, you would be interested in as getting a, stuff as a, for free? Exactly. I mean, is it just activism fueled? Yeah, you're right. M many of the hacks can indeed be seen in more critical 
light. In fact, the right to repair ideology isn't explicitly present on the automotive forums uh, for the pirated tractor software. And this question is also relevant in the second case that we've been studying the, the Nintendo Switch, which is a popular game console that came out in 2017. And quite soon after the release, uh, the hacking community found a way to circumvent its lock-in that dictates which software can be run on the, the console. Um, many gamers use this hack to be able to play illegally copied games. You could argue that this is a form of theft. On the other side, many hackers argue that Nintendo doesn't have a right to the device after it's been bought, and thus hacking it, it's not illegal as such. And this is in fact the same argument that's being used with the tractors. Once you buy a tractor, you should be allowed to modify it as you wish. Well, downloading the games is, of course, a different stuff. Yeah, and I think it's quite interesting to see also that um, when you look at the communities, you know, those that are developing the software um, and those that are then, you know, using the hacks to do something illegally or, you know, download pirated games and so on, um, those are often quite distinct from each other. They're, they're running on, on different platforms. Um, so it's, it's interesting that there is these two parts of the coin. And, and I think that's exactly what we had wanted to address with this gray zone that, you know, we can't just look at one thing or the other, but there's this complex network of things. Um, I think because both of these groups obviously also rely on each other, right? You need to have a group that that cracks it, that, that hacks the switch in the first place. Um, and I can maybe just quickly explain how that works. Um, it's actually not the vulnerability that they actually found in the switch is actually not Nintendo's. Um, and instead it's like uh, the CPU in there uh, that is made by NVIDIA. It's called the Tegra X1. Uh, and so when that chip is turned on, the first thing it does, the CPU is the first thing, basically what it does is uh, if it, it checks, do I run now in normal mode or do I run in so-called recovery mode? And um, this recovery mode is usually only used when something went wrong in a, with a device. And so um, a number of yeah, developers or researchers, like hackers, one might call them, um, at beginning of 2018 already, so really within a few months almost, announced that they had found this vulnerability and with the help of this recovery mode, they just basically simulated with the help of the little thing that you put into the switch connector, uh, you can force it starting in recovery mode and then that way hack it. So yeah, that's quite complex, obviously. Um, but that's, that's basically how you can then run your own code and can run your own operating system. And then once you have done all that, then you can download illegal games and put them on your switch. Uh, this can sound very complicated. It sounds complicated to, to me. But you could uh, think that, uh, and it sounds like you would have to be kind of a super techie expert to perform a hack like this. But as we mentioned before, the practices around hacking do not anymore involve just the hacker. And this is the aspect of the gray zone that we were talking about. So the question of what role does knowledge and expertise 
play, what are the different roles within uh, the community. And uh, so what we say is that the switch case shows really well how important collaboration is within the community. And our interest has been on the different knowledge and expertise how it's organized and how it's disseminated between different people and, and groups. Yeah, so, so basically it's impossible to say that there's one hacker who who hacked the switch. There's not the one switch hacker. Um, I mean, there was generally this one hacker, um, her name is Catherine Temkin. She has been widely accredited with it. She's, many people say she hacked the switch, you know, and especially for the media, of course, it's often quite important to have someone like that. But... Um, there's so many different individuals and groups involved um, on so many different platforms um, that are basically ping-ponging each other the balls to like, oh, we found this, then we found this, then we found this. And you can really nicely follow the stream of knowledge that goes between those different levels. So you have a YouTube video here, and then you have a forum where something else is discussed, and then it goes back and someone else replies with another YouTube video to show something. Um, and it's just it's just a gold mine basically if you want to study these kind of um, knowledge exchanges really um, yeah and uh, and just follow it and it's it's so much more complex than just the hacker yeah that sounds a little bit like uh, when you would you know go on YouTube to find out how you can root your iPhone or you know YouTube doesn't seem like a hacker space but you know it's like a yeah, and there are there are videos on YouTube that go much further than yeah, that, yeah. and there's videos where the depth you never even actually get unless you're really really looking yeah, for sure, it. Sure, sure, great. <laughs> um, guys, we have to sadly wrap up because our time is running out for this your session, but I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions. I need uh, to be rooting my Android phone exactly. right now, and my tractor, exactly. and my exactly. e-bike. Yeah, but <laughs> thank you to the, both of you, and please give them a wonderful round of applause. Uh, and uh, it was lovely to have you. This podcast series was hosted by Paula Bielski and Matze Oyala. It was produced by Heights Beats and Hot Milk Productions with funding from St. Gallen University. Thank you to all the panelists and audience members of the Hacker Cultures panel at the 4S and East 2020 conference on the theme of locating and timing matters, significance and agency of science and technology studies in emerging worlds.